8, as we return again to verse 13. Romans chapter 8, and uh, we return again to verse 13. Uh, to keep our context in mind, we will begin reading in verse 12, uh, Romans 8. We'll read verses 12 and 13. Verse 13 is our focus. This is the Word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how do we put to death the deeds of the body? How do we kill sin? Uh, We want this for Christ's sake, for the sake of those we love, for our own sakes. Uh, We want to be holy so that we can be a blessing and not a curse to those around us. We want to shine for the gospel. We want to be like our Savior. So how do we put the sinful deeds and desires of our life to death? And Paul's answer is that we do this by the Spirit. And we've been unpacking those three words. Then what in the world does that mean? By the Spirit. And we've seen that we have good biblical grounds to say at least three things. First, this means by the power of the Spirit that comes to us as we believe the promises of Christ. We fight sin and the strength that God provides, not in our own strength. We've seen also that this must mean making use of prayer. We plead with Christ to give us more of of the Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives. And then third, we've seen that this means making use of those means of grace that serve as the Spirit's instruments, tools, in making us holy. So to put this as concisely and as clearly as possible, to kill sin by the Spirit means to kill sin through faith, through prayer, and the means of grace. Faith, prayer, and the means of grace. Now, We're asking three questions about the means of grace. And the first one was this. What are the means of grace? And I argued this morning that though it comes to us in many different forms, the ordinary means that the Spirit uses to make us holy is the Word of God. Word of God read. Word of God proclaimed from that pulpit, this pulpit, the Sunday school lectern. The Word of God sung to us, the Word of God brought to our minds through the encouragement and admonition of other believers, Um, the Word of God informing and instructing us and giving meaning to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus quoted the Word to the devil when he was tempted, and he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is by the Word of God that we live. It is by the Word of God that we grow and have nourishment and become strong. If you want to be mature, this is the way. The Word of God. Now, tonight we come to our second question, which was this. How does the Spirit use the means of grace? Okay, Justin, you're saying that the Holy Spirit uses the Word as an instrument to make us holy. What, what does that mean? Right? What, what does that look like? How does the Spirit use the Word to make us holy? 
Ask those questions, church. Don't, don't just hear the Spirit uses the word to make us holy and say, hmm, that's nice, and move on. Ask questions. It's, it's when you ask questions that you get to the good stuff. This is where the treasure is. How does the Spirit use the word to make us holy? And the answer is this. The Spirit's way of making us holy is precisely the same way that the Spirit used the word to convert us to begin with. In other words, the Spirit doesn't first do one kind of work through the word of God and bring us to faith and then do a totally different kind of work through the word to make us holy. No, not at all. It's the same work. The Spirit is a good workman, and He does His work well, and He does His work with power. So what I want to do is I want to use a couple of stories and a couple of passages to explain how the Spirit uses the Word to make us holy. So first, a story of conversion. John Skinner. John Skinner was the kind of man that we would have thought would never be converted. John Skinner saw the revival that was happening around him, and he thought it was simply a bunch of people getting caught up in senseless enthusiasm. And he was a rational man, and he hated what he saw going on around him. And it just so happened that John Skinner was an itinerant fiddle player, He would travel from one place to the next place, being hired to play his fiddle at various uh, parties, weddings, community events. That was his job. And in the providence of God, John Skinner was in uh, Gloucestershire, uh, probably was his hometown, when the great preacher George Whitfield came to preach. And John Skinner decided that he would do something to disrupt the gathering where Whitfield was going to be preaching. Uh, He went to the church building where Whitfield was going to speak, and from outside he set up a ladder that would go up to a window close to the pulpit. And his plan as a fiddle player was that as soon as Whitfield would begin to preach, he would begin to play his fiddle so loudly that it would disrupt the service and hinder what was happening. So Whitfield comes to the pulpit, and he announces his text and began the introduction to his message, and Skinner gets ready to play. But before he plays, he needs to tune his instrument. And so he's turning the pegs and plucking and trying to make sure he has it right. And as he's doing this, he's listening to Whitfield's introduction and to what Whitfield is saying. And the more Whitfield speaks, the more Skinner became engrossed in his message And the man who thought that religion was all hysteria and ridiculousness left that day a Christian. Um, In fact, we are told that he became not only a follower of Christ, but a man who fell in love with and took a special interest in the psalms and the hymns of the church. And he ended up giving his gifts and talents to the glory of God. Uh, He had a plan when he got up on the ladder that day, and God had a very different plan. He was not seeking God, (laughs) but God was seeking him, and he was converted. Now, think about his conversion. What did the Spirit do through the Word of God preached to convert this man? 
And the one passage of Scripture that tells us, I think, the most clearly is 2 Corinthians 4. So it's one of our favorite passages. Go with me there again. Let's see it. 2 Corinthians 4. What did the Spirit do to this man and to every other person who's ever been converted? What did the Spirit do through the Word to give this man a new heart that believed on Christ? 2 Corinthians 4. We'll read the first six verses. See the answer. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hearts, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, Paul says, is the message of the glory of Jesus. And the devil blinds people so that when they hear that message, they don't see the glory of Jesus. And as long as the devil has that veil over someone's mind, the preacher can preach and preach and preach about the wonders of Christ and the glories of the gospel, but they don't... They don't They might get it here, but they don't get it here. They don't really see with the eyes of faith the glory of Christ. But when the Spirit comes upon someone to save them, here is what He does. He removes that veil, that hardening of their heart, that blinding of their eyes, and causes the person to see the glory of Christ. They see with their ears. Okay? They hear the message, or perhaps you were reading your Bible, right? But you, you usually hear the message, and what's happening? With the eyes of faith, you see the glory of Christ. The God who said, let there be light, speaks into our dark hearts by the Spirit to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And that's what it is. It's the glory of God come to us in the, faith of Je- in the face of Jesus Christ. So to put it simply, the way the Spirit saves us through the Word is by causing us supernaturally to see the glory of Jesus in the Word. When we see the glory of Jesus and the perfect Savior for sinners that He is, we cannot help but believe. We cannot but desire to be His and to trust Him and to follow Him. Those who hear the gospel and don't believe, it's because they haven't really seen yet. But when you see, you love and you follow the Savior that you've come to see. So, the Spirit caused you to become a Christian through the Word, however it came to you, by causing you to behold the glory of Christ so that you loved Him and wanted to follow Him. Now, if that's how the Spirit converted you, how do you think He grows you up? What is He doing through the Word in all of its many forms to make you mature? 
It's the same thing. Look up a few verses. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 15. 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So notice that we're talking in this passage about being transformed into the image of Christ. And Paul says this happens from one degree of glory to another. It's a process. We talked about that this morning. Sanctification is a process, and it's a process that comes from the Lord who comes to us in the person of the Spirit. So Paul says in this passage that the Spirit is transforming us by degrees. But how? How is the Spirit doing it? We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. How are you converted? You beheld the glory of Jesus as the Spirit gave you sight to see Him in the Word. How do you grow up? You continue to behold the glory of Jesus as the Spirit gives you sight in the Word. Just as the Spirit calls us to see the glory of Christ and converted our souls, He now continues to give us more and more glimpses of the glory of Christ. And the more we behold Christ, the more we become like Christ. And church, what does the Spirit use to show Christ to us? It is the Word. In fact, what's interesting is that in this passage, Paul's talking about the Old Testament. He says when Moses is read, he's talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he says even when the Old Testament is read, it's all about Christ. And that it's as you read Leviticus and you see the glory of Christ in Leviticus that you get transformed and become more like the Savior you see in those pages. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit uses the Word to show us Christ. And the more we see Him and savor Him, the more we become like him. Now, my second story is something I heard recently that I I found very astounding and interesting. It was a testimony about how, how little of God's word Christians have in some parts of the world and have had at certain points in history. You see, if the word of God is what the Spirit uses to grow his people, What about those people who have believed on Christ but have very, very little of the Word of God? You see, we're blessed. You do know there are Christians around the world who can't go onto their bookshelves and pull out a Bible. How does the Spirit grow up these Christians who have so very little of the Word of God? Well, the Spirit is so powerful and so mighty that He can sanctify God's people even in those places where the means of grace is scarce. Uh, William Lane Craig was telling this story. William Lane Craig is an apologist who seeks to defend the Christian faith against those who would attack it. And he said that he was visiting Russia back when Russia was still the Soviet Union, while communism was still the official ideology of the nation. And remember, during that time, the Soviet Union was completely committed 
to destroying all religion. Atheists were considered the higher people, the better people of the land. The government was uh, militantly atheistic. Protestant Christians often found themselves forcibly sent to mental hospitals where all kinds of things were done to them to try and rehabilitate them, rehabilitate them to their senses and to atheism. It was very, very hard for Christians behind the Iron Curtain in Soviet Union Russia. It was very hard for them to obtain a Bible or a Christian book. So William Lane Craig says that back then he was in the Soviet Union and he met a few Christians in Moscow. And these were obviously dear believers in Christ. And he was surprised that some of them were very strong in their faith. And he asked one man, he said, what resources have you had to help you walk the Christian walk? And here was the man's answer. He said, well, there is an encyclopedia of atheism published by the state. And sometimes by reading what that book attacks, we see what we as Christians are supposed to believe. Isn't that astounding? That's what he had. This man was learning the Word of God from an encyclopedia of atheism attacking the Word of God. And the Spirit took this device of Satan and completely used it in a way opposed to what Satan was trying to do. The Spirit used the Word even in that form to grow people up in the faith. So this is the power of the Spirit of God. He used the Word to show these people Christ and to grow them up. Now, the implication for us, then, is this. While there are so many Christians in the world who have so little resources to help them know Christian truth and to help them know the Word of God, we here are blessed beyond measure. Are we taking advantage of God's kindness to us? And are we passionate about getting the Word of God to those Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, who are hungering and thirsting for it? Some of you may have seen videos on YouTube and Facebook where, um, forgetting the name of it now, uh, but there's a video series that shows, for example, one clip was of an airplane delivering Bibles for the first time to a tribe that had come to Christianity through the preaching of the gospel, but they'd never had a Bible of their own in their own language. And it showed as the plane was landing, the people dancing around and celebrating and just, I mean, just absolutely thrilled, overcome with joy because they were going to be able to have the Word of God. We need to remember that there are people like that out there, many of them. And we ought to be passionate about getting the Word to uh, the lost, but even to our brothers and sisters in Christ who sometimes don't have it. All right, this leads to our third question. We've seen what the means of grace are, especially the Word of God. We've seen how the Spirit uses it. He uses the Word to help us see the glory of Christ, His wisdom, His power, His goodness, all of Christ. So how are we to use the means of grace? How are we to use the means of grace? That is, how do we walk with the Spirit in this endeavor? How do we cooperate with the Spirit, with the Word of God? We could spend a lot of time on this, so I'm going to narrow what I have to say simply on this. How can we make good use of the Word of God as it comes to us in our personal times of reading, our family worship, our corporate worship? How do we make good use of the Word of God in those times? So, 
Here we go. Um, First, how do we approach the Word of God? If this is what the Spirit uses to show us Christ and to make us more like Christ, what does it mean for us to make good use of the Word of God as we approach it? Let me give you six very brief points, and these could all be a sermon. I'm going to give you like two sentences on each, okay? Six points about how to use the Word of God well. Number one, we must approach the Word of God with prayer. That is, the Word of God on its own will have no effect on our lives unless the Spirit uses it to give us glimpses of the glory of Christ. So the Word of God should always be approached and accompanied by prayer. Number two, we must approach the Word of God with faith. We do not approach the Word of God, our daily Bible reading or the Sunday sermon or the Sunday school lesson, don't approach that as a critic ready to decide which parts of God's Word you find acceptable. Nor do we approach the Bible in some sort of superstitious way, as many in the the, the Orthodox churches of of Asia and Europe do, where they think that just by hearing it, even if it's in a language they don't understand, they think there's something magical, something mysterious about just hearing the Word of God that somehow transforms them. That's not how we're to approach it, not in a superstitious way. No, we we are to approach the Bible as disciples of Jesus, trusting Him, ready to learn from Him, ready to receive what Jesus has for us. We're to receive the Word with hungry, humble, eager hearts, that is, with faith. Number three, we must approach the Word of God with awareness. It is so easy for our personal times with God, our family worship, our corporate gatherings to become mere routine. Now, by the way, they should be routine, but they shouldn't be merely routine. That is, we must constantly remind ourselves, this is the Word of God. When you get up and do your Bible reading in the morning, don't let it become stale as if it's just some some duty. Remind yourself, I am about to receive the Word. This has authority over me. I should approach this with reverence. This is better than gold and sweeter than honey. This is something I deeply need. Always approach the Word of God with awareness of what a gift it is, what role it ought to have in your life, and how deeply you need it. Number four, we must approach the Word of God with purpose. The Bible is a sword, but a sword is only helpful if you use it rightly, with skill and with purpose. Handling a sword without careful intention and skill can hurt you. When you come to the Word, or when the Word comes to you, remember its purpose, that the Spirit is using the Word to make you like Jesus. The Word is not mainly to make you smart. The Word is not mainly to be used to help you win an argument. The Word is not mainly to be used to entertain you with fascinating stories. The primary purpose of the Word is to make you a gentle person, a loving person, a humble person, as you behold the glory of Christ in its pages. Approach the Word of God with that desire. Number five, approach the Word of God with commitment. If this is the chief and ordinary means of grace that the Spirit uses to make us holy, then we must be committed to receiving the Word of God in all the ways that the Bible commands. 
we must be committed to daily Bible intake, whether that be through reading the Bible on your own, whether it be through hearing audio versions of the Bible, whatever it may be, but you ought to be in the Bible to some degree every day. We need to be committed to singing scriptural songs, to learning the Bible in our families, to being present at the gatherings of the local church. People don't become holy by accident. You understand that? People don't become holy by accident. It takes commitment. And if the Word of God is the instrument that the Spirit uses, then it requires a commitment to the Word of God. Um, Be devoted to receiving God's teaching in all of the ways He's ordained it to come to you. Be committed to the Bible for your soul, just as you are committed to eating every day for your body. Do you ever go a day and you think, oh, I forgot to eat today. Just slipped my mind. I haven't eaten all day. That never happens to me. (laughs) Never. Okay. Well, that's how it ought to be with our soul, that we are so committed to the Word of God that there's never a day where we come to the end of it and say, I haven't read the Bible today. No. No, of course we have. We've come to it again and again in various forms because we need it for our soul. Number six, we must approach the Word of God with consistency. When Paul says to put to death the deeds of the body by by the Spirit, he doesn't mean do this occasionally. Do this from time to time. No, he means this is a daily battle, and this war requires consistency. And since the Word is your sword, since the Word is the chief instrument in this battle, you must come to the Word consistently. Um, In all of its forms. Maybe you you come to church a lot, but you've noticed that just in uh, the way things have been scheduled, you've missed a lot of Lord's Supper Sundays, right? Be careful about that. You need to be here for the Lord's Supper whenever you can be. It's a special means of grace that, that through which God teaches us His truth and, 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 and encourages our faith. Maybe you're very faithful in church attendance and hearing the word here, but maybe you're very seldom involved in Christian fellowship around brothers and sisters who can speak the word to you in, in encouragement and ad- admonishment. Don't forsake that. Right? God has, has not just said, be committed to reading the Bible. He said, be committed to the Word in hearing it preached, hearing it taught through Christian fellowship, through baptism, Lord's Supper, through all of these different means, singing. Right? Don't forsake these things. They are commanded of you for your good by the physician of your souls who knows what's best for you. So check your life. Examine your life. Is there some way that God ordained for the Word of God to be coming to you on a regular basis? And it's not, because you're neglecting one of those means. Uh, The Christian life is a life in which the Bible ought to be pervasive. Our goal should be that of Spurgeon. Uh, He said that he wanted his blood to be uh, bibline. Andy mentioned this Thursday night at the men's thing. thing. Spurgeon wanted his blood to be bibline. That is, he wanted the Bible to be so in him that when he was pricked, and we're all pricked from time to time, aren't we? Right? That when he's pricked, what comes out? Not anger, not self-pity, but Bible. Right? The Word of God. Um. He wanted to ooze patience, humility. He wanted to ooze the Spirit of Christ. That's what we want as well. 
All right, so let me summarize where we are. We've seen that we are to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And we've seen that this means that we're to be a people of, of faith, a people of prayer, and now a people of the Word. And we've just seen six characteristics that ought to, to mark how we come to the Word and how we use the Word. But as we interact with God's truth day in and day out, what exactly should we be working for? That is, we know the big answer, holiness. But in particular, what should you, <clears throat> excuse me, what should you be praying for God to do in you as you ingest the Word of God? What should you be looking for, seeking after, working towards as you read the Bible, hear the Bible, sing the Bible? Well, I want to close our study of this verse with six points about what to seek after when you are using the Word of God as you come to the Word of God. Six points about what your purpose ought to be. Each one of these, again, could be a sermon. I'm going to give you two or three sentences on each one. Number one, as you use the Word of God, you should be seeking to live more and more in the reality of God's glory. That is, you want the Word of God to teach your mind and to enthrall your heart with the person and the work of God so that He is everything to you. You say, Justin, what is the chief thing I should be looking at when I'm reading passages in the Bible? Look for God, right? It's about Him. That's what it's about. And His glory is on every page. There is not one obscure passage in the Bible that doesn't have God as its focus. Every passage is telling you something about the glory of God. Let that be your goal. And every sermon and every Sunday school lesson you hear, look for the glory of God. Everything is pointing to Him as the Holy, Holy, Holy One, the Majestic One, the Mighty One, the Righteous One, the Wise One, the Good One, the Merciful One, the Patient One. Number two, as you use the Word of God, you should be seeking to live more and more in the reality of God's love for you. We are so prone to unbelief when it comes to God's love for us. We say we know that God loves us, and then we still fall into anxiety and distress and fear. The truth, the truth of the matter is this. Many of us do not have roots that are going very deep into the reality of God's love for us. We only kind of believe it. We should be seeking through the Word to become rock solid in our confidence that God loves us. went up to uh, the Ram Board meeting with uh, Jim Upchurch from the church in Gibsonville. And we were talking about um, uh, a particular guy, a theologian named Carl Bart from years ago. And, and, and Bart did a lot of things that I didn't agree with at all, but he said some things that were good. But I, I made this comment to Jim, uh, just something that popped into my mind, hadn't thought about it in years. And that is that somebody went to Carl Bart one day and said, um, what is the deepest truth you've ever learned? And he said, well, I learned it as a boy. It was Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is the deepest truth, just about, that you can find in the world. Here's the problem. We know it here. But if you look at how much we worry and live in fear, it shows that we don't actually know it here. When you go to the Bible, see the love of God for you and believe it. Number three, as you use the word of God, 
you should be seeking to love God increasingly. That is, here is the key to defeating sin. Love God more than any pleasure promised by any temptation. Okay? So when the temptation comes, which is going to be most attractive to you? Is being obedient to God going to be attractive to you? Or is the sin going to be more attractive to you? The more you love God, the more that He means to you, the more you have seen His glory and live in His love and are, are standing in awe of Him, then the more you're going to find your heart inclined to say, you know what, that pleasure offered by sin doesn't come close to what I have with God. The key to defeating temptation is having a superior satisfaction that temptation can't touch. As you encounter the Word of God, one great goal is that you would be increasing in your love for the God of the Bible, that you would desire to fall more in love with Him as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Was it Machen that said, I, I don't know which three members of the Trinity, I don't know which one I love the most, all I know is I love them all. <laughs> Do you love the Father as the Father? Do you love the Son as the Son? Do you love the Spirit as the Spirit? Could you, could you just spend time dwelling on their character, dwelling on their works, dwelling on their love for you and what they mean to you and what they're actively doing for you? Do you love them? As you go to the Bible, find more kindling for the fire of love in your heart towards God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Number four. As you use the Word of God, you should be seeking to hate sin increasingly. And by the way, I hope that you're seeing that I'm giving you these in a descending order of importance. In other words, number one was number one for a reason. And if you do number one well, all these others are going to follow. And if you do number two well, everything else is going to follow. Similarly, if you do number three well, grow in your love for God, number four is going to happen. The more you love God who is light, the more you're going to hate darkness, right? The more you grow in your love for what is good, the more you are just impulsively going to, to hate that which is wicked, which is contrary to good. So this is your desire as you study the Bible, that you would see the glory of God, that you would see His love for you, that you would grow in your love for Him, and as a result of that, that you would hate all that is opposed to that all that would disrupt your relationship, all that would pull you away from Him, all that would cause your heart to be hardened to this love that you found. You see in the pages what sin does to people in the Bible, what it does to the human race as a whole. Look at what it does to David and the anguish it causes him as he's there pleading with God to spare this baby boy. See the consequences of sin that come upon the people of Israel. See Jesus taking the punishment for sin on the cross. And in the pages of the Bible, let it all cause you to see sin as it really is in all its ugliness. And then number five, as you use the Word of God, you should be seeking to become increasingly familiar with the devil's schemes. That is a good fighter will seek to know the ways of his enemy. He will seek to know the tactics of his enemy, especially one whose chief weapon is deception. The devil's chief, we chief weapon is deception, which means this is an enemy that you need to study closely. 
You need to know His ways. Some weeks ago, Pastor Merle on a Wednesday night showed us from Scripture some of the devil's ways. False teaching, the perversion of the gospel, deceiving people about their true standing before God, deceiving people about the dangers of bad company, and on and on and on. We should pray that God would help us as we read the Bible to see the devil's tactics revealed there and that he would give us the grace to discern them as they come into our everyday lives. Use the word for that purpose. And finally, number six, as you use the word of God, you should be seeking to learn. We've seen it again and again. The Christian's offense and the Christian's defense against sin. It's all over the Bible. I'm, I now see it these days. It seems like everywhere, these same principles about fighting sin, our, our offense, our defense. It's clearest, Romans 6, 12 through 14, but it's, it's all over. Our defense, self-control, self-denial. Right? And our offense, killing sin by doing its opposite. Right? Working hard to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit and to do good because it is hard to be tempted to greed when you're in the middle of being generous. And it is hard to be tempted to bitterness when you're in the middle of showing kindness to people. If we simply do what Jesus calls us to do as much and as often as we can, there will be no opportunity for the devil. There will be no opportunity for sin. A life of obedience, of intentional obedience, is the best attack against sin. But we need the Word to teach us what that obedience looks like. We need the Word to give us the instruction we need to live a life of full obedience. So Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, let us kill sin by the Spirit. As Romans 8.13 tells us, what does it mean to kill sin by the Spirit? Kill the sin by faith, believing what the Bible says about you. Kill the sin through prayer, by pleading with God to rid it out of your life. And kill sin in your life by absolutely deep-rooted conviction and commitment to the Word of God using it for the purpose of seeing Christ in every page and letting that have its work and effect in your soul. We're done with Romans 8.13. It's time to move to Romans 8.14, but we're not um, for a while. What we're going to do over the next seven messages is a detour. What does this look like in real life? We're going to take the seven so-called deadly sins you realize there's not just seven deadly sins, right? Live according to the flesh, you will die. But we're going to take what what Catholics call the seven deadly sins as example sins. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at, all right, what about the sin of pride? I struggle with the sin of pride. What does it look like for me to attack the sin of pride in light of everything we've just seen over these last four sermons of Romans 8.13? I, maybe you don't need the nitty-gritty, but we're going to have these next seven sermons for my sake, if nothing else, and I hope you will benefit from it because I need the nitty-gritty. I need to know what does this actually mean. And so we're going to talk about pride and greed and lust and envy and uh, all of these different sins that, that plague. We're talking about seven of them to put this into practice. And then we'll come back to, to Romans 8 and pick up with... If this discourages you, all this talk about sin, and I hope it, hope it doesn't, but if it does, understand what's about to come. We're about to talk, oh man, we are about to talk about one of the sweetest doctrines in the world as we talk in Romans 8, 14, 15, 16, 17 
about the fact that us rotten sinners have been adopted as children of God and what that means. The rest of Romans 8 is really just blessing upon blessing and glory upon glory. There are good days ahead for us as a church, Mount Hermon, as we study Romans 8, so I'm excited about it. But let's not rush there yet. Seven sermons on killing sin, and then we'll, we'll get there. Let's pray.